You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of 340B Unscripted, a new podcast brought to you by the SpendMen Pharmacy team. My name is Greg Wilson. I'm here with my co-host, Rob DeHoopy. Hey, Rob. Hey, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Exciting. This is our our, our first foray into the the podcast world. Um, Looking forward to it. Absolutely. And if I can, I'll introduce our sponsor, uh, which is SpendMend. And I want to thank our marketing team, who's who's providing most of the support for this podcast, as well as our uh, vice president of optimization and and, um, and growth, uh, Matt Parker, who's doing a lot of the background editing work for us. And just excited to get this going and, and to share a little bit, a little bit more about our experiences in 340B. And if I can, I like to kind of talk about how we got here. Uh, yeah. Greg, if, if you remember, I think we had a bunch of us on a call. Uh, we do a lot of Zoom and Teams meetings. And, and whenever there's a hot topic or a kind of gray area topic that shows up, we, we have these discussions. And, and Greg, I can't remember if it was you or Jake or somebody else made the point, I should be great to record these and share this with the 340B community. And, and that's really the genesis of this podcast. We want to be able to Take all the experiences that we're having. Uh, you know, we do uh, over 400 audits, uh, annual independent 340B audits a year. We participate in one to two HRSA audits every single month, supporting clients through the HRSA audits. And we learn all these things. And, and, and of course, we have 30 plus team members on our team. And, and all we do is live and breathe 340B. We've got 30 people dedicated 340B, reading everything that comes out. And this is our opportunity to really share that with you in an unscripted format. So we're not reading from a and any type of list or or script, we we literally are just going to ad lib this and and kind of just talk like we normally would in a meeting, and hopefully that, that doesn't throw us off too much. Um, but that's the plan. So I'm looking forward to to numerous podcasts and having people on. Yeah, yeah, the, the, those team meetings that we have on Monday with everybody is really really inspiration for me to to get involved in this because we have such such great organic discussion around all the the really complex elements of, of 340B program management and even beyond 340B pharmacy operations and and just what's what's going on in, in the healthcare industry. And you know, I've I've sometimes referenced some of those discussions that we've had with clients when I'm when I'm out on audit and you know the clients often say, oh man, I'd I'd love to just be a fly on the wall and listen to the team kind of debate some of these really uh, obscure or complicated um, aspects of the 340B program. So, so hope uh, folks are are uh, looking forward to to hearing some of that uh, that that discussion kind of cascade here into our podcast. In terms of uh, f- format, uh, you know, as as Rob mentioned, this is you know totally unscripted. So again, each week as we gain insights from the field, we're picking up on hot topics in the 340B space. And you know, our plan is to post uh, a podcast episode every month that really gives us an opportunity to debate and talk about those uh, those hot topics. We may have some ad hoc episodes uh, created here and there if there's a really um, significant uh, development or a pressing issue that we really want to talk about, but look for us to publish our episodes on, on a monthly basis. And uh, if you need more information on SpendMen, you can find us at spendmen.com. And we've got a pretty um, pretty solid presence on social media. So you can look for us out on LinkedIn, on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook at SpendMen, and uh, learn a little bit more about our, our organization. Excellent, excellent, Greg. So we do have a, a fantastic roundtable later, and uh, but before that, uh, any topics we should cover for this introduction? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I think last week, you know, we saw the Supreme Court made a ruling on uh, Medicare Part B payment reductions. So mm-hmm. um, if you recall, it was back in 2018, CMS published their uh, outpatient prospective payment system rules and introduced some significant changes to 340B drug billing for uh, covered entities. You know, they introduced uh, the use of these new modifiers. So depending on the, the type of covered entity that you are, uh, you would have to include some modifiers for uh, high cost infusion drugs. So the status indicator K drugs. And with those modifiers also came a reduction in payment for a lot of 340B covered entities. So rather than getting paid the usual ASP plus 6%, uh, the payments were reduced 
for those impacted covered entities down to ASP minus 22.5%. So a 28% reduction in, um, in payment from Medicare Part B for those high cost infusion drugs. And that ended up resulting in like 1.5, 1.6 billion dollars in savings for CMS that first year in 2018, and then another one and a half billion dollars in, um, in 2019. And I believe it was AHA, that uh, initiated litigation against AHS, HHS, um, challenging the, uh, the 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 payment reduction. So, so what did you take from the Supreme Court ruling last week? Yeah. I, so first of all, excited, excited that the Supreme Court made this decision. And man, I feel like I'm I'm going to be the one to um, rain on everyone's parade. We talked to a lot of I've I've talked to quite a few of our clients uh, in the last week, and everyone's excited. And I feel like we got to temper that a little bit, because um, if you really read the Supreme Court brief, um, it was specific to 2018 and 2019 reimbursement rates. And they didn't, you know, just just basically say that can't be done. What they said was HHS or Medicare CMS didn't do it correctly. Right. Yeah. They, this, is and, procedural. And, this is a procedural it, issue right now. Right. And so so the Supreme Court didn't say they can't do it. They said the way you did it was wrong. And so that's if you think about that, that's so scary. So that does mean there is the potential for some payback. Right. This that one point six billion plus that you mentioned um, annually, this this could be paid back. But you almost have to go back and think, OK, well, what did what did they even do with the money? And yeah. if you remember, there was this kind of. Um, they, they have they had to follow this kind of uh, neutral policy, so they couldn't just take the dollars and apply it somewhere else. They actually had to take those dollars and spread it out amongst all of the hospitals being reimbursed by by Medicare. And so some of those dollars went to for profit. Some of those dollars went to the covered entities, just in a different category. And so even though that money was taken away, some of it was given back. And and so how is even even if HHS gets to the point they're going to pay it back. How are they going to do that? Are they going to really take it away from the hospitals? That could negatively impact some of our our hospitals. Uh, it you know does is that even possible in today's market where hospitals are suffering? So that may not be the right course. Yeah. And so so the Supreme Court what re, I think it's the word is remanded. They they sent it back to the lower courts and really HHS to figure out how are you going to do this. And a, AJ uh, American Hospital Association is also involved. So they got to figure out how it's going to happen and. To be honest, it, it could be future budget pieces. It could be, you know, it could be taking it away from the covered entities. I guess they could say, hey, we're just going to net out the covered entities that were affected. Maybe they don't touch the ones that weren't. Um, and so we're not sure how that's going to play out, but we still have to wait for that. And and here's the one that I think is is um, going to be tough. And, and Greg, I'm not sure what you think about this part, but HHS did do a survey, right? So when it comes to how Medicare can change the reimbursement, they have two options. One is is what they currently do today. They figure out an average price um, charged by manufacturers, and, and they do in calculation. That's really what the ASP plus six percent is. That's that's option one of the two options. The other option, which they technically did do in 2020, is they can conduct a survey of hospitals. Okay acquisition costs, and then they can set um, pricing based on that average acquisition costs, um, you know, and they can do that by a hospital grouping. So so they technically could try and go back and do this. The one question, Greg, I'm not sure if you have any information on it, is in 2020 when they did this, I'm not sure if that was sufficient. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I We haven't heard. Um, so I know there's a lot more to come, or they may just try and redo the survey in the future. The survey does probably end up taking closer to two years. So I will say at minimum, we may have a short-term reprieve. Um, but the other thing that we're waiting to find out, and, and maybe this will be a topic of a future podcast, because in July, uh, HHS has to release um, their pricing for 2023. And so do they have enough time to even adjust it based on this court ruling? Or are they just going to do what they've done in the past and just keep yeah. leaving it in there with the with the minus? And we're, we're going to have to just figure out how that's going to work out. So I have probably more questions than answers for people. Greg, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to that. but. Um, Definitely, I think it's a wait and see what's going to happen here. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I've been telling folks that have had questions specifically about what they should do right now. You know, I think we're still kind of in a holding pattern. You know, there was some chatter on some of the the 340B listservs out there and covered entities are inquiring. Well, you know, now that the Supreme Court's made a ruling and they've declared that these payment reductions were illegal, can I can I pull back the use of the JG modifier and start receiving my usual reimbursement? And I don't think we've seen anything that would indicate that 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 is what is advised right now by HHS. You should continue to bill as you have been and wait for CMS to publish the next round of their OPPS uh, payment policy before making any programmatic changes in how you're billing Part B, right? 
Exactly, exactly. So we agree. I agree. Hold, hold for now, because yeah. remember, SCOTUS didn't. Um, all they they remanded it back, so they did not address a remedy. So the remedy still yeah. has to occur. And so just to be safe, we say continue to do what you're doing. Um, and, um, and again, hopefully we'll be able to talk about this in a future podcast and maybe get into more details and, and maybe even provide some kind of uh, recommendations or areas you can follow up on. Yeah. Great. You know, another, another hot topic is patient definition. We've had, uh, a few developments over the last, uh, couple of months and some areas of focus that covered entities have been exploring around, you know, patient definition. And recently we had a roundtable discussion with a couple of uh, hospital provider representatives, as well as some folks from the SpendMen Pharmacy team talking about some of these developments around patient definition. We're going to share that recording with you today. Any comments, Rob, on that before we let folks uh, listen in on the, the roundtable discussion? No, it was, it was a great topic. Uh, it was a great conversation uh, and, and uh, probably a good time. I Honestly, I can't ever remember if we introduced them in the, in the recording. We're, we're still getting used to this, but but I just got to say uh, we've both been able to work with uh, both these um, uh, 340B leaders. Uh, we have Alex Soto coming up. She's at Memorial and down in Florida. And then we also have uh, Patrick Klein from uh, Cone Health and Moses Cone, both uh, been able to work with for years. Uh, intelligent people, I, I think, um, you know, they, they're both looking at this expanded patient definition and the Genesis law case and what does this mean? Um, and I, I think the our, our roundtable does a good job of kind of breaking it down and um, kind of explaining how maybe a covered entity could potentially use this. And I guess the only thing I like to say up front is, you know, every, every covered entity probably needs to decide for themselves based on the information. Um, if it applies to them and if, and if they want to use it, um, you know, it's definitely a gray area and, uh, we kind of cover the, a lot of that in the round table. So I, I don't want to do it again, but probably without further ado, we probably should get to that. Yeah. Well, Rob, it was good catching up with you today. Look forward to our next episode. And again, thanks for listening and enjoy the, the round table discussion. Take care, everyone. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by SpendMen Pharmacy. As a pharmacy industry professional, you know 340B program participation includes complex regulatory and audit requirements that must be managed carefully and accurately. If HRSA identifies non-compliance issues, costly and corrective actions are often required, and 340B programming eligibility may be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how Spendman Pharmacy can help you ensure 340B compliance while driving significant savings. All right. So we're, we're going to experiment a little bit with our format today. Rather than our usual platform presentation that you may have seen in our previous webinars, we thought it would be interesting to bring folks in to listen in on a more form, informal discussion amongst 340B thought leaders on a thought topic that's been generating a lot of discussion in 340B circles lately, specifically patient definition. I've got a group of 340B experts with me today representing both hospital covered entities as well as some senior leadership from the SpendMen Pharmacy team. And we're going to chat about patient definition and how that term impacts 340B program operations. But first, let's start with some introductions. First, we've got Alex Soto, Corporate Finance Director of the 340B program at Memorial Healthcare in South Florida. We've got Patrick Klein, Executive Director of Pharmacy Business and Non-Acute Care Services at Cone Health in North Carolina. We've got Jake Thompson, Vice President of Pharmacy Services at SpendMen based out of Oregon and Rob Nahoopi, our Senior Vice President of Pharmacy Services based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, Greg. Thanks. All right, before we get into the questions, I just wanna recap this issue of, of patient definition, and I'll, I'll try to be quick. Um, the 340B statute's actually very limited in detail regarding what constitutes a 340B eligible patient. So when we historically think of patient definition, we're thinking of the guidance that was published by HRSA in 1996. However, there was an executive order that was issued in 2019 that prohibits HRSA from enforcing these guidance documents. And then the GAO published a report in 2020 that confirmed that HRSA's relaxed its audit standards because of that executive order, limiting their audit findings to only elements that are in clear violation of the statute. We're not going to get into it too much today, but I think it's important to note that this also serves as the basis for how drug manufacturers have begun and continue to restrict or eliminate the sale of 340B drugs through contract pharmacy channels. 
There's also been a recent legal case, the Genesis Healthcare. It's a South Carolina-based FQHC that successfully sued HRSA to overturn audit findings related to that covered entity's use of continuum of care to establish uh, patient definition. So we'll talk a little bit about this case and how a continuum of care relationship comes into play for 340B covered entities. Unrelated to the Genesis case is an area where patient definition is being debated by hospital covered entities, specifically related to Medicare cost report line 190 or below the, the line clinics. These 190 clinics have historically been to be not considered to be 340B eligible, but recent HRSA audit experience suggests that prescription claims that are issued out of these non-reimbursable departments are routinely satisfying audit criteria. So hospitals have started to evaluate how these 190 clinics might be integrated into their programs. That took a little bit longer than I'd hoped for, so let's just jump right into the questions. So th this first one's for our, our covered entity representatives, so Alex and Patrick. When you guys uh, discover uh, uh, or hear about a development like the Genesis case, uh, something like that that's very news and noteworthy to 340B comes to your attention. How does your hospital respond in terms of processing the info and evaluating what that might mean to your hospital in terms of its 340B program operations? I'll go ahead and uh, go first. Uh, yeah, I think one of the first things we want to do is Take a take a look at the information. Go to our governance, you know, 340B governance body, and uh, have some conversations around that. And what's the potential opportunity for us? What is the risk that we may or may not be willing to take um, associated with a, a case like that? And um, obviously, continue to watch and see how how it plays out. As uh, they're still, I think, waiting for for a response. So. Alex, so how about you? Something, yeah, we did something similar. Um, and in this specific case, uh, we have taken a lot more interest into it, um, especially with manufacturer restrictions to our um, contract pharmacies. And, you know, situations like this, when they come up, um, even if it's not the same covered entity type, you look for opportunities to expand your program, but still meet compliance. and. Um, you know, we're getting ready to to meet with our executive team, but also work with our legal counsel as well to get their feedback um, before proceeding. All right, Jake, Rob, from from our end, working as consultants, what what how how do we kind of approach communicating to our clients and to the 340B constituents out there key information like this? Well, I think what we try to do is listen because we're out and talking to folks like Alex and Patrick all the time and understand, hey, what are you hearing? What are you interpreting? What's the pulse? Right. And we take that with our expertise and usually then have a conversation internally with all of our consultant teams. And we do that every Monday. So we're, we're constantly talking about the dialogue on a variety of topics. And then sometimes when things sort of continue to grow of interest, we try to put out information, whether that be in a newsletter, whether that be in a content like this, um, or a, a white paper that you mentioned. So people can take that as sort of a summarized uh, body on a topic, and then take it to a leadership team like they, they both, uh, um, Alex and Patrick mentioned. So that way you sort of have an internal stakeholder with your own legal team interpretation of an issue with someone like us who says we're sort of interpreting this broadly across the spectrum. Um, Rob, oftentimes you help sort of also get some, you know, whether it be at a Pexis or HRSA and try to like, you know, see if there's any information we can also gain there to throw in the conversation. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, really, it's almost like crowdsourcing. We're taking all the information that we're learning from the covered entity audits that we're on or that we're uh, gleaning from HERSA audits that we participate in to see, you know, how new information impacts what the current HERSA audit process looks like. But I absolutely agree. I, I think, you know, using uh, our Pexis um, colleagues and, and in, in, in turn HERSA specifically to see if we can get any type of specifics regarding the circumstances critical because we're always compliance first. So, you know, we want to maximize savings for covered entities, but we always want to make sure we're doing it in a compliant manner. And it's how you walk that fine line in these gray areas. This is definitely one of those gray areas of 340B that makes it really tricky to know where we stand. So I think a lot of it just comes from experience and what we are seeing 
um, and what uh, what's showing up on the HRSA audit final reports um, that, that drive that. And you know, in addition to looking at that, you also have to pay attention to well, how are manufacturers taking it? Are they doing something? Is it a duplicate discount issue that that might go through uh, manufacturers and, and, and state Medicaid offices, right? So you're always looking at it. Is it just a, a HRSA issue or is or not a HRSA issue more directly with manufacturers and and trying to determine is there going to be an, a negative impact to the covered entity if we implemented some of these recommendations? But it's a good point. Great. All right, let, let's talk about the Genesis case. So, Rob, I'm going to push this question to you first. So the Genesis case involves a FQHC, so grantee covered entity. What's the significance of this case for hospital covered entities like where Alex and Patrick are working at today? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a good point because um, Genesis is an FQHC. Um, they did have a couple of components in their um, lawsuit that was specific to an FQHC, and not that a hospital with a primary care uh, uh, clinic couldn't have something similar. Um, but I think there's a portion that is um, applicable to hospitals, and there's a section that's not. And I guess the question is, is that that component that's not applicable, does it even matter? Um, and so just to outline that for everybody. So first of all, as an FQHC, they have primary care. And their focus was on the fact that as a primary care provider, they're providing care to you know all these patients that they see. And if you really look at the 340B patient definition, the argument really is, you know, even based on a, even whether it's continuum of care or just part of the general care they're providing, that really when those patients go and see a provider, even in the absence of a formal referral, that this covered entity, this primary care provider as an FQHC is responsible for care. So I think that's very true of hospitals as well. Many hospitals, um, especially critical access hospitals with rural health clinics, but even large dish hospitals or uh, pediatric hospitals have primary care or other ambulatory services that are very similar to primary care, whether it's OBGYN or oncology, where patients are really being seen by those providers on an ambulatory basis longitudinally and are, are maintain that relationship such that those providers effectively um, participate as their primary care providers because of those specialty conditions they have. Um, so I think that still fits, right? So I still think in any situ situation where the covered entity is the primary care for that patient, I think they could make the same argument Genesis is making that um, they're responsible for that care. Now, Genesis does have a component that's a, that, that may or may not apply. I actually think it's not needed for the continuum of care argument. I think the continuum of care argument still stands. And I'll try not to bring up the Morford letter on this call because I love talking about the Morford letter. It's like urban legend, right, in 340B. It's like, have you heard of the Morford letter? Um, so, but before we get to that at some point, I'm not sure if that's gonna fit in the conversation today or not, but we'll probably end up talking about it. Um, the second component in this is that Genesis or the FQHC was really a medical home. So that's where, you know, just to, real quick on medical home, that's when, you know, you work with um, Medicaid or any payer and say, hey, we're going to take this subset of patients. Maybe it's 400 or 500 patients. You're going to get a fixed rate. It almost sounds like capitation that we had a long time ago because it pretty much is. We just renamed it um, in this medical home where you get a fixed dollar amount per patient per month. And then you have to cover all the services included in scope. And what Genesis also made the argument of, well, part of their scope is prescription. So if a patient goes and sees, you know, some cardiologist, even if they didn't refer it, that patient's going to come back to their pharmacy and then they're going to have to fill that prescription as part of that capitated rate. And so they're kind of on the hook financially. Um, now, HRSA's already looked at financial responsibility for care as may not be sufficient to meet the medical responsibility for care, at least, again, probably guidance um, or clarification, not so much in statute because that's, that's actually not stated in statute. But I think it falls under the same line. But I don't see how being responsible for the cost of the drug actually relates to responsibility for clinical care. So that's why I so I think even though there's that second instance with the Genesis case, I don't think it's absolutely required. I think the argument around continuum of care still exists for both FQHCs or any really grantee and hospitals um, from an application standpoint. So that to me makes Genesis case very um applicable to what we're talking about today and, and how a hospital or covered entity might use it. Anybody else have thoughts on that? Yeah, so con continuum of care in acute care services, do you think, is that too much of a stretch or do you think there are scenarios where acute care services offered by a hospital really can serve as the starting point of a continuum of care that would allow for 340B eligibility to continue after discharge? I think that that's a great point, Greg, to bring up. I mean, it's not new where hospitals um, for certain disease states are responsible for care for a said period of time, maybe 30, 60 days to not be readmitted. So 
those types of programs, which many time are government government run programs that specifically hold a covered entity or a hospital responsible for that care, because if they bounce back through the ER, they don't pay for it because they say you just that's just a continuation of care you previously had. So I think they're a really good argument that says that care in meantime and that's anything specifically absolutely is your responsibility of care. So you start to take these steps out and that's where we end up getting to these other other scenarios where we say, well, if that's if we all are agreeing that that's um, you're responsible, you can start to take the next step and the next step. And so then sometimes you get so far out and you don't forget how you've been there. But we certainly have government payers who hold hospitals accountable for patients when they aren't directly in their care right now. Yeah, so curious how you guys think of continuum of care in your areas. And uh, we have two scenarios I want to go into as well in this, but, you know, we look at continuum of care where, you know, patients come to us and we maybe need to refer them outside, you know, outside to outside of our healthcare system uh, to another healthcare system or another specialist that's not at all associated with us. But because it was a referral, and if that prescription come back, comes back to us, it would qualify as an eligible prescription because of the documentation. Um, however, these are some of these clinics are also part of our memorial system that sit in our lines 190, where they are physicians. You know, we have access to their medical records. These uh, healthcare providers are considered credentialed within our organization. And we continue taking care of them. So, you know, the Genesis case really raises that question of, you know, what is our opportunity and what does guidance really state in this um, in order to continue expanding care and access to our most vulnerable population in the area? Yeah, I would just... uh echo uh, really what's already been said. I would agree with the thoughts of um, Alex. And also, I think Jake brought up a, an excellent point in regards to uh, you know, health systems already being held accountable for you know, those readmissions. And uh, you, know, you can make an argument there, uh, I think, around that continuum of care uh, based off of that. So I think, you know, I would just, I would, again, I would just echo what's already been said. Okay. I, I didn't want to do it because I wasn't sure how much time we have. But Continuum of care is really the Morford letter, right? So for those that aren't familiar with the Morford letter, it's a, it's, it's a discussion that occurred, I think, via email. Someone had to correct me there. But between uh, Deputy Director of HRSA at the time, uh, Thomas Morford, and Bill Von Olsen, who was with SNAPA, who, the, the, who, which was previously, or now has been renamed as 340B Health, uh, for those that have been in the program for a while. And in this correspondence between those two, um, Bill Von Olsen asked a very good question. Hey, wouldn't um, care... Um, or prescriptions generated from an acute visit at a hospital, say an ER discharge um, or a discharge from the hospital or an ER visit, but is related to that care continue, wouldn't that qualify for 340 be in? That's where um, uh, uh, Director Morford said, yeah, it would. Now, Bill Von Olsen pressed him and said, well, for how long? And, and the response from uh, Deputy Director Morford was, well, two years would be too long. And so whenever we think about how long after an acute visit could we claim um, a continuum of care. A lot of people say, well, 12 to 18 months. And that it's not because uh, Director Morford said that. It's because he said two years was too long. So arguably you could go 23 months and whatever, 30 days if you really wanted to push it. So most people say 12 to 18 months seems reasonable. Um, and I think along with what Jake was saying, um, when you think about never events and, and Medicare not paying for a readmission, there's always a period of time when that has to occur within. So, so I think conservatively, people might do 12 months, people might push it to 18 months. Clearly, if you're on the ones, uh, the far spectrum of, of pushing the boundary, you'd go 23 months, I guess, and, and some odd days. Uh, but that's kind of what the Morford letter talked about. Now, that's not something formally published by um, HRSA or HHS or in an FAQ, but definitely, um, uh, I think, part of the 340B culture. Um, if you've been in a while and if, and if anyone's listening and needs a copy, just email us. We'll get you a copy of the Morford letter. Um, not fully sanctioned, but uh, we have it's a copy. It's 340B Canon right now, I think. Yeah, that's right. It is Canon. I like, I like yeah. that Canon. That's nice. Yeah. Um, we need to create like the 340B wiki or something. Wiki? Is that how you say it? There you go. <laughs> <Wiki> um, <leak. laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, no leaks. No leaks from our, from our 340B <laughs> wiki. 
Um, but but I think that's right in line with consumer care. So so we've been pushing the bounds on this uh, for quite some time regarding a Morford letter when it made sense. There's a little more detail on that about previously what Hearst would allow the continuum of care argument with the Morford letter to work. Um, but I think that's been opened up a little bit um, with the Genesis case without enforcing guidance, which we've seen since 2019. And, and I suspect that, you know, Hearst is really looking at these on a case by case basis when you're when you're using these types of arguments. So, so Rob, this, this question is really for you. you know, we, mm-hmm. we support a ton of clients going through the Hearst audit process. Have, have we gained any insights or conclusions from recent Hearst audit results that suggest this patient de- definition is evolving? Absolutely. Um, you know, and I don't want to put any of uh, either Alex or Patrick on the line because uh, whether they have or have not gone through HRSA audits and experiences, but we do have other clients. I just want to put out there it may not be or it probably isn't Alex's or Patrick's covered entities, but um, we've seen covered entity audits in, uh, since 2019. I think everyone's aware that since 2019, um, that's when the Genesis lawsuit came about. That's also when we, um, the current uh, administration at the time, presidential administration, told the government agencies to not enforce guidance. And so I don't know which one caused it, or if maybe it was a combination of the two, but since 2019, we have seen um, what we would say is less enforcement of diversion related to um, retail prescriptions. Um, if I can give one story, an example, um, you know, we're going through a hearse audit and anyone who has Walgreens uh, knows that the RxBE process is good, or it's very good process because it's talking about generating prescriptions from e-prescriptions with your 340B ID embedded into it. So as long as the provider's logged into the right location, I know that's the weakness, but if the provider's logged into the right location, it's going to qualify just fine. Well, we're in a hearse audit, and sure enough, one of these situations occurred where the prescription um, originated from a non Well, the patient was being seen at a non-qualified clinic. I can't even remember if it was a 190s clinic or just the medical group clinic of the, the health system, but the provider also practices at least part of the time in a qualified location. So same clinical practice mostly non-qualified, at least once in a while, at least one day a week or so in a qualified location. Well, the provider was working at the hospital-based qualified location when his patient needed a refill. So he refilled it, but was logged into the qualified location. Patient had never, ever been seen in this clinic. So I'm sure many of you listening, if you're a covered entity, you've stumbled across these hard to find because it requires the provider to be logged into the right location. So a lot of times these are found on um, monthly self-audits and then they're reversed. But in this case, it just wasn't caught. It was a needle in a haystack. It slipped through. The patient um, did have a single visit, one visit that we could find at all during the hearse audit was a lab visit. So right, so we're stressing this out, going, okay, there's no way this is going to pass. Um, this was earlier, probably 2020, just after 2019. So we hadn't known how and how much they're going to enforce. And and based on that, we thought it'd be a finding, and we didn't even see it on the hearse audit report. So that led us to believe that okay, so hearse is saying okay, the patient's a patient of the covered entity. The lab visits, not that we should ever base anything on a lab visit, right? We always say lab and imaging don't count as visits, right? You need a clinical visit with a provider. But in this case, because the provider was working in a qualified location, the prescription was generated at a qualified location, the patient had been seen, it was a cardiology, I believe, so they had some cardiology lab visits. HRSA allowed that one to pass. So that's just one example that we think HRSA's at least eased up on what diversion looks like um, and the criteria. And so based on that, you know, we, that and the Genesis case and the lack of enforcement of ability to enforce guidance, we actually asked her, uh, starting with Apexis, we, we escalated to a senior policy advisor after we went through the normal channels um, on Apexis answers. We had one of the senior policy advisors. We asked him the question about 190 clinics. We asked him what this continuum of care, um, you know, they were working with her son trying to get some FAQs on this. So we waited a while. Um, the final result was, well, everything's in a case-by-case basis, so not willing to get a broad answer. So then we went ahead and emailed HRSA directly with with um, guidance from Apexis on this. I had a contact at um, HRSA, so we reached out to HRSA and asked a specific question, and we brought up the fact that, hey, based on the Genesis case and all this stuff, we gave three specific points. We said, you know, could 190 clinics be considered eligible based on the fact that we already have FAQs and, and information around um, clinics such as uh, inpatient rehab and inpatient psych, which are lines 40 and 41, so not between 50 and 118, but they are eligible and do not have to be registered. Then we know in April of 2020, we had the FAQ 4301. Well, that came out in 2021, but we had the clarification in 2020 that a new location does not need to be registered, but could be considered eligible immediately and then register when it can be registered, which would typically be more than a year later. Um, so that was interesting that we could have qualified offsite locations that aren't registered. So that's a second example. 
And then the fact that um, if you go back and read the actual 1992 um, specifics about the Veteran Healthcare Act, Section 340B, nothing in there really states anything about being a reimbursable facility. That actually came out in guidance um, in 1994, two years later from HRSA, stating that it needs to be a reimbursable facility. So the question is, if that's guidance, is it enforceable, right? So that's where the idea of, can we potentially consider 190 clinics qualified? Um, They're on the cost report, they're integral, they meet the patient definition. The only thing they aren't is a reimbursable facility of the covered entity. Um, So just so you know, so we did hear back from HRSA, so I appreciate them responding back in actually a very timely fashion. Um, I expect it to be a lot longer based on HRSA audit reports taking a lot longer, but but they were pretty quick. And and we got the answer we probably would have expected. They're not going to say yes or no because they need to look at every single instance. But I'll tell you this, it wasn't a no. I know that's a double negative. That's an um, homage to Boer, if you guys know Rich Boer. Um, he's big on double negatives, but here's what they kind of said. And I'll paraphrase it. Basically, that um, they can't, you know, globally respond and say yes or no, but that really each hospital and even a, as an individual sample during an audit really needs to be looked at based on those specifics uh, regarding it, um, whether it should be um, whether it would pass or not. And they did say that you know you definitely should keep policy and procedures of your program to ensure a compliance of of any 340B program requirements. So, so we took that as not a no. Not a yes, but not a no. Um, so we, so again, we're having this panel discussion to really get into this topic of, so what do we do with 190 clinics? How does that work? Yeah. And I think, I think that's where right? it's like we see this. We were saying um, patient definition, but continuum of care keeps coming up, right? And it's all about how you define continuum of care, and do you feel you're responsible for the care of the patient in each of those different scenarios? Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if you can make a blanket policy across all the different types of episodes of care that you're going to have at your hospital. There's going to be, you know, some scenarios or some sectors of, of your, your care that may more, um, you know, more realistically be associated with continuum of care than others. Think of like cardiac surgery or cancer care or sickle cell where, you know, the, the patient's coming back to the hospital routinely for um, follow-up care for an initial, you know, surgical, you know, encounter or something like that. There's going to be scenarios where you can more strongly, I think, make that argument. And then other scenarios like an incidental ED visit and then follow up in a, uh, a, a non-eligible, you know, endocrinology clinic for, um, you know, diabetes management. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be scenarios where you can't really r- realistically apply a continuum of care. So it's going to need to take a little bit of insight and, and clinical judgment um, by the covered entities if they're going to try to incorporate that into their policies. Any other thoughts on that? I think it's very interesting how, you know, with HRSA's response and, and where we are today, because, you know, when we look back to when the pandemic started, a lot of this continuum of care has applied, especially you know, when patients can't come back to see their patients in the beginning, telehealth wasn't what it is today, and it's revamped in two years. Um, but even then, the the patients are still being compliant with medications, but not necessarily need a visit. So, you know, in, in our case, you know, it really makes you take a look at what the potential is here, because most of our 190 clinics are all our specialist practices which are the most critical patients we take care of. And, you know, they really are in our cost report. They're not reimbursable, but how much could we extend that continuum of care knowing that these are patients, you know, coming to the clinics, you know, they do follow up with other services, whether ambulatory, infusion, you know, prescriptions or, you know, random case of ER visits like Greg mentioned, but, it really makes you take a, a look back at your operations and your policies and what you've been doing to see, you know, what applies to you as an organization. Yeah. I think that's a good segue for my next question, which I'm going to start with, with Jake. So I'm a covered entity and I look and I see, okay, look, based on HRSA audit experience and, and all these other things that we're talking about, there, there may be an opportunity for me to expand my patient definition. How, how do I go about analyzing the impact that that, you know, that change is going to have on my, uh, my program is the, you know, maybe I can do it, but is it worth it to me to do it based on how that improves my financial standing in my 340B program participation? 
uh, I think this is a critical component, right? As as 340B leaders, I, I think it's your responsibility to do this fiscal assessment before you bring a group of diverse leaders at a steering committee together to, to sort of brainstorm this idea, right? You need to be able to come to the table to say, hey, here's the financial upside and here is the compliance risk and concerns that we're going to have in this conversation. Um, we highly recommend that you bring both of that um, to the table at the same time, because if you go do the analysis and you realize it's not really that fiscally in your favor, then what, what's the point of beating it up within your organization? Um, let, let that play out elsewhere and learn, um, but, but not use your time. So the key, though, is what kind of claim data or potential qualified claim data can you get, right? If these clinics happen to be in your instance of your EMR, that's easier to be able to say, okay, hey, what prescriptions are written out of clinics that aren't currently qualifying but may with this conversation that we're having? Or if it's a partner down the road, um, can you request that information to say, hey, can you run a prescription file to be able to get that? Um, sometimes the TPAs that you work with might be able to get some sort of qualified um, information if you know what NPI numbers the physicians may be in that expanded care um, if that clinic happens to be outside of your EMR universe to be able to pull data. And so get what data you can on the areas that you're considering um, and then use sort of um, historical opportunities um, on what's the 340B savings for some of those claims. And when you are in this bucket of trying to put a price tag on those claims is really also making sure that you're coming into all the manufacturer restrictions Right. So you don't want to say that you're going to be able to get qualified claims and then be able to get 340B actual savings if, for instance, you're not going to be submitting data to 340 BSP. Well, if you aren't, then you really only be able to look at the financial opportunity for the one pharmacy that you've picked, whether it's an in-house or somewhere else. Um, or um, if you're a grantee and this doesn't apply to that manufacturer, they haven't put those restrictions on quite yet, um, then you might be able to do a broader piece, right? So you've got to layer in what data you can get, what's the potential 340B value, sometimes break that down by manufacturer, or at minimum understand the impact of 340 BSP to give a realistic scenario of what this sort of clinic may look like. And therefore you have a dollar figure to be able to bring to the conversation and say, hey, this is important because this could potentially add 10, 20, 30% of savings to our program. And that's why we wanna have this hard conversation versus it only adding a few percentage points um, that still may not be worth getting the, you know, the group together to be able to um, have this difficult conversation. So get as much information you can, but you gotta layer in your own programs, um, implications to where those prescriptions are going and where you can actually receive dollars, even though you may qualify them. I know, Patrick, Alex, as you guys have sort of assessed that, I mean, any other nuances or tidbits you could share? We haven't yet put a number to it. Um, we're still working on that financial analysis. Um, you know, we're just you know, we get a list of what MPG clinics, in, in our case, already use our same EHR that we have access to. We've learned they don't all use the same system. Um, so obviously excluding those out, but um, we haven't put a number to, to the impact, but I'm pretty sure it's close to in the millions because, again, it's our large, it's our specialist clinics, you know, it's most expensive drugs um, to care for these patients. Yeah, we're uh, in a similar situation. We haven't put a, um, a dollar value, uh, assigned a dollar value at this point in time. Still going through the financial analysis to really determine what the potential would be. And, you know, I think the other piece of that really, um, even if it maybe isn't a, a significant or huge dollar impact, is just what is the potential to maybe help some patients that maybe are being served at or coming out of um you know, clinics that currently don't qualify, but maybe would qualify. Um, and maybe they are the uninsured, underinsured patient population that maybe you can offer some type of um, other program to them in a way that you could really utilize some 340B for them. Yeah, I mean, and that in and of itself is the intent of the 340B program is to get access to those, those patients that need it most. So 
that's that's always been a frustrating part for me. We had a free clinic, so totally free clinic. It was on the line 90s, but it was unregisterable. So we we ended up having to buy those drugs at WAC as a dish facility on our in-house read, which makes zero sense, right? It's like the only reason it's not is because we don't, we're not char- billing anyone for it. Isn't that the intent? So I think that's what some of this is trying to resolve um, is, is how do we fix that loophole that uh, when we're treating that, that uh, underinsured and, and uninsured patient population in a free clinic that the free clinic clinic can qualify based on its location. And, and maybe that's what Hearst is going to, uh, maybe Hearst will allow us now as we're getting, as what we're talking about, maybe that would qualify today, albeit unregisterable if it's off, outside the four walls. All right, let's start with Rob on this one, and then we'll go around the room. Any predictions on what we might see um, in terms of, you know, federal government enforcement capability by HRSA, things in the courts um, that might impact a covered entity that's looking at some type of strategy to broaden their patient definition? Okay, and, and no pressure, Rob, it's recorded. So whatever you say, we can hold <laughs> yeah. you accountable yeah. for. All right. Do, do we have any like um so can i put it out there until we get get some vegas odds type stuff going on we, we can re-record if something gets you know published or decided upon in the future so everybody like, remember okay, what well, they're wearing i've got my crystal ball out um the magic eight ball um now here's here's what i think is going to happen so so i you know we've got all this going on and and really part of the not to use a play on words here but the genesis of this whole issue i think start with manufacturers taking away pricing right so across the country, especially in our hospital side and to some extent our grantee side, we're seeing this, this negative impact on 340B savings, much of that savings used to keep doors open in hospitals. I know so many critical access hospitals that are struggling right now, running in the red, and this 340B savings, they use to keep the doors open and expand service to patients. I think just keeping their doors open provides a safety net for patients in rural areas, right? So huge impact. And so we're really looking at this just so everyone knows, not because, hey, how do we save more money program? It's how do we get back some of the lost savings in the program? Everyone we talk to is being impacted by these manufacturers. And, um, and so we're trying to figure that out. So, so I think my crystal ball tells me that the federal courts aren't going to resolve this situation, right? I think if anything we've seen from them, they're kind of, they're in the middle and really they kind of point it back and say, the, the 340B statute wasn't specific enough. So we can't answer this question about whether 340B contract pharmacy should be enforced. And I think that's what's going to continue. So I don't expect to get resolution from the courts. I really think it's going to boil down to either the Senate or the House introducing at the federal level, introducing legislation that's going to give HRSA either A, rulemaking authority, or specifically fix the contract pharmacy issue. Now, I do think if HRSA gets rulemaking authority, which they've been asking for, um, if you remember, you know, uh, Admiral Pedley in multiple instances when be asked, she said, well, the statute's silent. And what she's pointing out is, the statute's silent, and we don't have rulemaking authority to actually do anything here. So I get we need to enforce stuff, but we need HRSA needs help. And so, albeit we're in a kind of a re-election year, so we didn't see anything this year. So for everyone listening, we didn't see we don't see anything giving HRSA rulemaking authority this year. So it could come up late in the year, likely show up next year when we're not in a re-election year. And I think that's what's going to require. I think that could occur. Um, just depends on the appetite of the House or and or the Senate to put forth that type of legislation and for both of them to pass it. But if that occurs, that's when I think, A, the contract pharmacy issue gets resolved. I think they enforce contract pharmacy compliance with 340B there. I think they do tighten up the patient definition around 340B. So where what we're talking about today might go back to pre-2019, meaning we're strictly talking about from a qualified location um, and to define specifically what a qualified location is or formally referral if they leave referral in place. And so I think those things tighten up, but I think it occurs almost simultaneously or within months of apart from getting contract pharmacy back, which is a big part of why we're talking about this today is how do we even recoup some of these losses that we're seeing across the board? And how do we make sure we're maximizing savings as good stewards of the program and therefore being able to impact patient care? So that's that's my crystal ball is that that's what needs to occur. Otherwise, I think the current situation perpetuates and we need to look for solutions on how we help covered entities recover some of those losses. I, I think you nailed it, Rob, in that at some point, this continues to build enough pressure to get them rulemaking authority. And just on the topic at hand, right? And then and you're having conversations within a covered entity on what to do with this unknown definition of what is a patient is, you know, HERSIS has, has told us what they think. They just can't enforce it. So internally, this is a really important question because if you believe what Rob's saying, hey, it's an election year, 
this is going to go into 2023. You've got another year out before HRSA potentially has rulemaking authority. So you have a year of savings on this sort of expansion of the patient definition, at least from a traditional stance. Um, and you, you, you can kind of probably put that in the bank on um, an opportunity. But if you start to think about a pro forma that is a two or a three year pro forma, the second and third year, your confidence interval on whether or not HRSA is going to be able to strike this down and you really realize the, the savings, it goes down on some some confidence interval. I don't know. Everyone has to interpret that themselves. But it's just important to know as you think about annual savings, you know, the first year's annual savings, you might have a lot of confidence in. But the second and third, you may not want to wait as high when you're looking at the total financial value because, you know, a lot of us believe that HRSA will be able to sort of get a little bit more enforcement and where in this process this might be, it might be higher than um, you might think. I mean, because if they're going to come down on the manufacturers, they're probably going to want to come up with a more standard patient definition. That's a really important key pillar. So I just think that's an important, so great question, Greg. I agree with Rob. Um, be curious, Patrick and Alex, you know, when you're talking within your leadership teams about manufacturer impacts, are you, are you in the 2023, this gets some direction? You have hope for 2022? What are you thinking? I mean, the, the timeline on how quickly HRSA makes changes isn't very positive <laughs> from what we've seen in the past. Um, and even when you look historically on how many changes have really come out, it's not a whole lot for how long the program's been around. Um, I almost am afraid to say it, but I almost feel like that Omega Guidance 2.0 is in the very, very near future as a lot more attention gets around 340B. I mean, it's not just on when will HRSA get authority, but with between contract pharmacy, manufacturers, PBMs, it's, you know, little by little, very quickly escalating. Um, and, you know, what the future is, we don't know. You know, obviously, 340B is a huge program for everyone across, you know, the U.S. And, you know, does it all go back to drug pricing? A hundred percent. So, you know, we'll... HRSA just getting guidance or authority change everything? No, a lot more needs to happen. And, you know, as we plan ahead, you know, you keep that into consideration, but we're also living in today and today's issues with our patients, with, you know, even underinsured, uninsured, they need their meds today, not in three years, yep. you know, and what we can do to help them, you know, that's why we fight for this program and for access to medications. So it's, it's hard, you know, but it's healthcare and it changes every, you know, quarter. I feel like it's a new issue or new way to find a solution. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's a, it's a challenging position to be in on the covered entity side right now, because, you know, if, if, if you're trying to improve your financial footing today, because of all the financial or the manufacturer restrictions, you know, there's a lot of resources that are, you know, required to respond to the restrictions and to upload the data to 340BSP and to track that, you know, you're actually getting that pricing back. But then there's also another scenario which gives you the autonomy, I think, to look at your patient definition and expand the 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 way that your program qualifies patients. Again, albeit coming with some you know so, some risk because we don't know how HRSA really interprets those um, things like continuum of care and 190 clinics um, based on what they've you know communicated to to covered entities. Um, so th there's really you know a couple of different avenues covered entities can take to try to, you know, make ends meet today um, without getting a lot of instruction or, or clear um, rules that they need to follow um, from HRSA. And if I can add one last part, um, some people do ask, as we have this topic, well, what happens if HRSA goes retrospective, 
when they change a rule. And and I don't think that'll occur. If you think about rulemaking, typically if 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 it's if the statute's unclear and they create a rule, they typically get rules get published in the Federal Register. There's a comment period, often six days. Um, and then they have to respond to those comments and then they formally publish them as a finalized rule. And then it then there's typically a date where that rule gets implemented and they it's very transparent um, and and lots of communication on that. So so I think there will be time to to respond or to react and to adjust um, if you decide to implement some of these strategies, um, whether it's continuum of care one nineties, um, depending on your appetite for um, you know uh, where where you want to be on that spectrum. Um, but I think there's going to be some a period of time where you won't they won't go retrospective. It's just going to be moving forward. What what about other threats? Do do, do we can we think of other threats? to the 340B program that covered entities might experience. You know, when the when the first six manufacturers um, that restricted contract pharmacy sales, when, when HRSA referred them on to the OIG, my thought was, oh, that may be a big deterrent for other manufacturers jumping on board. And that was wrong because we're at 17 now. So what? where are other areas where we could see, you know, covered entities participation in the program be jeopardized in the near future? Well, one of the things that, you know, has been sort of um, brought to light and communicated in the last 30, 45 days is certainly PBM reimbursement. Let's bucket that as one hit. Um, but second is sort of specialty pharmacies that are owned by PBMs are starting to put forth their own rules and what's in their best interest as drug manufacturer data impacts them on the backside of losing where they were traditionally getting a 340B qualified dispensing fee and getting rebate to their own PBM. So you can see where some of these specialty pharmacies, they're all right now scrambling and they're watching how many people are uploading data and they're trying to calculate and forecast what that means for their rebates and their bottom lines. And then what can they do up front um, with that? And will they do that drug specific? That's not new. That's been done in the past around qualified claims by by drug coming out of those specialty pharmacies. So you've got the PBMs impacting the 340B program, but also from a from a reimbursement, but also from access to qualified claims and data and such from their own specialty pharmacies. So it's a really hot and sort of evolving topic that I think we're going to have to pay very close attention to to see if it starts to um, heat up or if that sizzles. Yeah, that that you're you're seeing that vertical integration in the in the market really have impact on 340B covered entities now. Any other threats? I know we've got the Supreme Court ruling on CMS OPPS um, payment reductions from back in 2018 coming up at the end of this month. So, um, you know, we will we'll be staying you know close to the to that. Um, so maybe not threats, but other opportunities. So if you think about it, if you go back a year from now, you know, the first real discussion of 190 clinics um, kind of falling into 340B program operations was when Maureen Testoni kind of gave her State of the Union at the Summer Coalition, shared a little bit of insight, and that generated a lot of chatter around these below-the-line clinics. We weren't really thinking about those, though, this time last year. What do you think the next thing is that we're going to be talking about as 340B covered entities that we need to explore in terms of gray areas where maybe we should focus our efforts to maximize our participation in the program and recoup some of the savings that have been lost due to the the manufacturer restrictions. Trying to think from things we've mentioned so far. I mean, it's between manufacturers, PBMs, the ops payments. I mean, I know we're now looking into finally expanding co- into contract pharmacies um, and, you know, tapping into that opportunity for prescriptions they're filling over patients. Um, Patrick, I don't know if you have anything. <laughs> well, I, think- I don't. I, I really don't. I mean, I think... Um- you know, you you may have just mentioned it. The maybe the opportunities or something to go and uh, you know try to purchase some of the contract pharmacies that you have that then they become wholly owned um, as an opportunity to uh, you know com- combat, if you will, some of the the moves that, from the manufacturers. Um, you know, who knows? I mean, they 
what if they come out and say that uh, now they're not going to allow you if you're your pharmacies are wholly owned, they're going to restrict that down to to one location or something along those lines. I mean, it's who knows what we're going to face. Uh, it seems seems like it's the wild, wild west right now. Mm-hmm. I'm actually in that unique position where my retails and home infusion specialty were entity owned contract pharmacies. And even with today's restrictions, that process is still not very organized. And I'm still being impacted at the majority of my locations because of how it's being run. Um, so I can't, at this point, I, you know, I want to be hopeful, but even with being wholly owned and having exceptions, it's still not being applied correctly. Like I'm still having financial impacts, which are in return impacting our patients, you know, when they're like, why did you, you know, why are you charging me a hundred dollars when this used to be like $5? Cause we were able to extend that benefit to them. Um, But that is a good one. I think others, you start getting creative within your own program and look at areas that maybe you could operate as clean sites um, where you buy only 340B depending on how you're doing things. Um, And I mean, we're not really opening up new hospitals <laughs> anytime soon or areas, but um, it's how you can get creative with your clinics, your setups, yeah. collaborative practice agreements. You know, you really start looking at a lot of these things that probably have been on your to-do list, but you, they weren't as much of a priority because you were focusing on compliance. But now when you're put in certain pressures and situations, you you look at ways to to change to to go outside your comfort zone and this whole misconception of well this is how I ran my 340B program but then you look at like we are today the statute and guidance and really focus on what the law states you can and cannot do so that's kind of at least where we're at now. <laughs> yeah I mean one thing that I I think maybe some of us have have talked about this but you know one one strategy that I think might be out there that could could be looked at further is, you know, reallocation of virtual inventory credits. So we've got contract pharmacies that have all these banked credits based on 340B prescriptions that have been filled, but we can't capture the the 340B discount because of the manufacturer restrictions. Can those accumulations be allocated to another element of your program or another universe um, and and used by the covered entity? So again, not, not a lot of clear instruction or guidance or rules or regs around how you manage your virtual inventory. So like you said, Alex, I think that's another area where covered entities maybe can look at more creative applications of how they uh, they manage their, their 340B inventory. Yeah. And I know we're running out of time here, but another area I've seen, so I, I agree with Patrick though, um, and Alex, we're, we're starting to see more covered entities really um, acquire contract pharmacies that are performing poorly and at risk of going under anyway. And bringing them under their umbrella, some of that's impact that they're not getting some additional a margin from the 340B savings. So there might be some opportunity there. But the other one is, I think covered entities, I'm starting to talk to some health system leaders that are saying, we're voting with our dollars. So if a manufacturer's on that list, if they've got clinical alternatives or biosimilars, tons of biosimilars in that space now, um, we're going with them. Um, because that doesn't impact. If we start in the hospital and then they discharge on it, then they're typically okay still. So I do think manufacturers, although they are seeing some initial savings, I think they're losing some definite um, market share within the covered entities as they start shifting during P&T review. So I, I think internally, every health system should be looking at that, You know, which, which manufacturers are playing nice in the sandbox that are better business partners that haven't taken away your savings, that haven't you know, take, you know, doing some orphan we didn't even talk about orphans and what we're seeing with more manufacturers taking away the orphan 340B like savings, but we're seeing a lot of impacts across the board. So I think voting with your dollars is another key one that health systems can do today. That's true. It's a good point. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point, Rob. You know, I think back in my time in a health system, you know, the, the 340B aspect of our hospitals really never got factored into our formulary decision making, but now you know, there's probably great opportunity to leverage 340B participation in the discussion of what, you know, what drugs you add to your formulary and what manufacturers you choose to, um, you know, go with in terms of uh, some of your medication use protocols. Yeah, 
something that we have within our PNT. It's not a defining factor. It's more of a nice to have, but um, you know, as usual, you, you focus first on clinical outcomes and what's best. But um, it's definitely something that's still taken into consideration. But it's by no means, you know, just because you have 340B opportunity, we're going to shoot that drug. It's, is it really better for the patient? But it usually still turns out as a win-win for both. Yeah, safety and efficacy always first when coming to those decisions, but don't don't ignore the three forty B variable that could could help you. If all things cost, are equivalent. right, it, it, little PTSD because my master's degree had a lot of outcomes research, but that cost benefit analysis and right because the best drug or the, the, with the biggest clinical outcomes might be so expensive it might not make as much sense when you the fact is we don't have unlimited dollars in healthcare. We really um, <laughs> the lot of health systems telling me they've ran into red. Um, this past year is is higher than it's ever been that I've seen in my my time practicing in pharmacy. Tough decision. Well, that's, that's all the questions that I have. Any 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 last thoughts? Anyone wants to share? I just think hang in there, everybody who's listening, trying to figure out these complex things, right? And you know, yeah. um, try to engage as much as you can, and 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 with with experts like the folks we've got on the phone. Um, other colleagues in your your close vicinity that you know, um, you know, listen and, and and talk, and we all learn. Um, it'll be interesting to see what we learn, you know, in August at the coalition. Um, see if we get any more tidbits, like you mentioned from uh, Marine Testoni and some of the things she was seeing in her. And so, um, just hang in there. These are complex conversations. Um, you can't put your head in the sand because it's not going to go away. There's always going to be these complex things to deal with uh, in the program. Yeah, it's been around 340B, I think, a little over 10 years now, but this is for sure the most, besides Mega Guidance, <laughs> years back, but this is for sure the most uh, 340B topics up in, you know, Senate and in the government so far. And it's the most attacks I think we've ever had. And, and surviving is hard, but reaching out to, People like you guys at SpedMend, but you know, also your your network, your 340B organizations or other covered entities. Um, that's how we're able to learn and, and find new ways to, to stay afloat. All right. Well, Patrick, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to invite you back in a year. We'll replay this recording and see if Rob's predict predictions are right. I want some Vegas odds on that. I'm calling August 2023. That's what I'm calling it. All right. Thanks for having This is great. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm taking the over. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. All right, everyone. Take care. You guys. All right. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.